0: The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism Abu Dhabi. Sadiaq Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi. Proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. This week, we're in Detroit, as we report from the World Economic Forum's Urban Transformation Summit. The gathering brought together leaders from business, government, civil society, media and philanthropy to forge new partnerships and learn from one another. Join me as we hear more about the challenges of creating a truly 24-hour city in Boston.
1: When we're thinking about affordability and livability and quality of life, transit is so important in that equation
0: explore a new master plan for Alula, an ancient oasis city in Saudi Arabia, which hopes to bring back the community to the town.
2: There's a clear vision that's been put out there and everything works around that vision. We do everything to realise that vision, that charter, those principles are paramount
0: and discover Milan's new sustainable innovation district on the site that hosted Expo 2015.
3: We wanted to create an era where people wanted to come not only for work, but for live with families, with people 24 hours a day.
0: That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes here on The Urbanist. Reporting from Motor City is Monocle's own Carlotta Ribello. Now let's join her.
4: It's a known fact that 55% of the world population now lives in cities. With that figure set to grow to 68% by 2050, it is imperative that local governments, private companies and communities alike start working on the cities of the future today. This was the basis for this year's Urban Transformation Summit in Detroit, hosted by the World Economic Forum. The gathering wanted attendees to share best practices with one another and work towards building more resilient, sustainable urban environments. One way of doing that is by investing in transit solutions. In San Diego, the city has invested in a program called Circulate to provide a free all-electric shuttle connecting passengers from the last stop of public transportation to their final destination, acting as a last-mile solution. Shelby Rust-Busso is San Diego's chief sustainability officer and she told me all about it.
5: In San Diego, we have a Department of Sustainability and Mobility. Um, We do several different things in our department. One of those is managing our parking districts. In our parking district, we have several of them around the city, and we've actually been digitalizing our parking, which means that there is paid parking in several of our districts around the city. One of them is Pacific Beach. And in that particular one, we've been able to use the funding that's received from parking that is closer to the beach area to pay for what we call a circulator. This one's called the Beach Bug, and it actually just launched recently. It was a fun initiative. We did a little naming exercise that was community-led, and that was actually fun to have a, a naming contest for people to call it the Beach Bug. And what the circulator does is pick people up from transit, It is funded by, like I said, the paid parking by the beach, and it provides free all-electric transportation from anybody who takes transit to Pacific Beach from the trolley that's about more than a mile away from the beach to allow free access to anybody who takes transit or anybody who wants to use an app on their phone to get access to the beach.
4: San Diego, like many cities around the world, faces the challenge of, you know, that last mile solution when it comes to mobility. What you just described seems like a great way of fixing that for this particular journey. What are some of the other ways that that's being addressed in the city?
5: Yeah, I mean, last mile connectivity is certainly a challenge. So we've been doing things like adding extra bike Lanes. We have a pedestrian plan. We have a bike plan. We've been consolidating all of that in our master mobility plan um, because it's a lot to navigate when we have so many multitude of plans. We have community plans. We have a mobility plan as a part of our master general plan for the city. And so I would point you more towards our master mobility plan to consolidate all of that. And that's been the most recent way to pull it all into one place, to say that we have things like our circulator, we have the one in Pacific Beach that I mentioned, we also have one downtown, but then the bike plans, I mean the bike ways is probably the other one that I would say is a really helpful way to be able to connect people to any of that last mile well speaking of bike lanes one of the things you mentioned on stage
4: that i found quite interesting was geographically where san diego stands you have these initiatives that are going to be the first in the country for cross-border connection you mentioned a trolley and also expanding the bike network perhaps can you tell us a bit more about that
5: Yeah, so we've been working with our partners, both the regional planning organization and then also, of course, MTS, which is our regional transit authority, to think about maybe potentially partnering with them on a cross-border trolley, which would be the first in the nation to make sure that we can facilitate the commuter network that goes across the border. We are a border town, so we know that that is crucial to making sure that that process is facilitated. And that could happen within the next few years, but some critical partnerships will be necessary to facilitate it.
4: Saying then, maybe we can step away from mobility and looking at what's essentially your core role, which is looking at sustainability across all sections. I'm curious to hear from you on what would you classify as is the biggest challenge you're facing at the moment. Of course, cities are all striving and working towards reducing their emissions and deploying more sustainable and resilient solutions to the built environment, but that's all easier said than done and requires partnerships, it requires effort and sometimes having the will from local authorities is not enough. So what at the moment would you say is the biggest challenge to actually deliver a more sustainable San Diego?
5: Our first climate action plan was in 2015, and we just passed an update in 2022. So we're working this year on a building decarbonization roadmap. We did take the first big leap in that through a partnership with the World Economic Forum, which we've been talking about here today. Through a city sprint exercise to identify a few different target areas that we are launching through four different pathways on some workshop areas with partners, through some building performance standards, a community pilot for electrification, some workforce development strategies, and also some microgrid projects. But in particular, the electrification, especially of residential households, is going to be, I think, one of the most exciting, but also probably one of the biggest challenges, because we are about 90% residential and that's you know household by household really trying to work equitably on a just transition for people in their houses to transition to 100% electric is going to be a challenge to make sure it's affordable but also like happens in a timely manner and happens in a way that actually can get people where they need to go and decarbonize quickly enough to meet our goals is really going to be hard but rewarding as well
4: now, transportation also featured heavily in the discussions about unlocking a truly 24-hour city. This is something that the city of Boston has been working on, as Kareen Reynolds, the city's director of Nighttime Economy, told me.
1: It's one of those things where it's a retention issue. It's a revitalization issue. We're coming back from the pandemic and we want Boston to be just as thriving and vibrant as it was prior to the pandemic, if not more. We are home to a bunch of industries. We have a ton of students, life science industry. And so how do we attract and retain talent? And that third space, the place where people uh, do their sports or, or health and wellness or where they go out to dinner and eat, that's Vital to determining whether they want to stay in a city or move to a city, whether our residents want to walk out and enjoy the restaurant. How do they do that? Where are the opportunities for that? And so we're looking at the night as just another way to be thoughtful about our economy.
4: Now, we talk a lot about the nighttime economy, the nighttime city. We were just in a session about the 24-hour city, and right. I think that poses an interesting way of thinking about our urban environments, which is not daytime and nighttime, but actually all hours of the day. Exactly. Um, one of the issues raised here was transportation and exactly addressing the way people move around cities at all these different times of day. How crucial is to unlock transportation in an affordable, safe, sustainable manner to allow the city to truly be 24 hours.
1: What I'm hearing from a lot of our constituents is transportation is one of the number one issues and barriers to a thriving nighttime economy in a 24 hour economy, really. We have a lot of third shift workers that work beyond those hours where our public transit serves our city. And you know when we're thinking of an affordable city, allowing public transit to serve those third shift workers is critical. So I mentioned all of those students that we have. How are those students getting home? It has to be Uber or Lyft, but these students don't have large incomes and our surge prices go to like $70 to go two miles, right? And so when we're thinking about affordability and livability and quality of life,
4: transit is so important in that equation. But also It's important to think beyond just the bars and restaurants and the nightlife and to think about the job's the nighttime can create, how people are moving around the city and utilizing city space. What are some of the ways you are addressing these questions and rethinking how the city positions itself after dark?
1: Well, our transit system is a regional transit system. And so having a seat at the table is super important when we're thinking about a large table of folks throughout the state. And so we have now gotten a seat at the Board for Transportation And and that's really going to be representative of our Boston-specific issues. We will be able to highlight things that are intrinsically focused on us and that we face as a city. And that's critical when we're talking to MBTA officials. The issue is with our transit system, it's not at prime optimization during the day. So we have to address those issues first to ensure that we can extend service into the night safely. And then as a city, we have... invested significantly in our infrastructure. We have bike lanes that go across the city through our greenways, Thinking through our bus services. We have designated some bus services that connect folks from one end of the city to the other that go a little bit later than our trains, as well as making them free so that people, working class folks, can afford them, can get to where they need to go and rely on them as a a public way of moving around the
4: city. Now, one of the other things that we talked about here was bringing people back to the downtown of the city. Now, you talked about a really interesting example of the conversations you've been having with developers about how can they not only adapt buildings to be residential, but some of the, let's say, concessions that need to be made by both prospective residents and developers in order to respect the particularities of a nighttime economy as well. Tell us a bit more about that.
1: We want a thriving, bustling downtown area, as any city wants, right? But we are faced with some issues as far as like the utilization of office space. And so what we've recently passed is a strategy to rezone some of these office spaces in our downtown area, for residential purposes. Now, this serves two different things, right? We have a bit of a housing crisis in the city of Boston and an affordability issue when it comes to housing as well. So we plan on utilizing this rezoning to solve for some of that. But when you bring more residents in, that sometimes can create issues between that vibrant nightlife extended day that we are trying to build. And so there are some examples that we're looking to adopt from other cities. I believe Austin is looking to do this as well where we do sound assessment of the businesses around them and then we could potentially require developers to show that sound assessment to potential residents. And if resident signs a lease, they are agreeing to the sound that is omitted in the environment that they are living. And so that kind of mitigates some of the complaints that we may get (laughs) down the road when you hear the noise coming in from your window from the restaurant down the street.
4: The work to deliver the next generation of urban systems begins today. Master planning cities and neighbourhoods needs to take into account quality of life for residents. In Milan, this has been unfolding at the Milan Innovation District. Set in the site of the Expo 2015, it is rethinking this area of the city with nature, innovation and sustainability in mind. I caught up with the CEO of our Expo, Igor de Biasio, who explained their plans to develop the area.
3: We decided to have all together public, private, and third sectors all together. So it's a very big area, one million square meter, where we have now a new hospital, the Galeazzi Hospital. It's the highest in Italy, and it's been done in three years. Then we have a a Human Technopole, which is the research center on rare illnesses and genomics. And we will have the University of Milan with 20,000 students and researchers in 2026. Then half of the site is dedicated to private companies. And we already have big companies like Illumina, AstraZeneca, Bio4Dreams, Skydeck Berkeley and others that are coming. So we are focusing on life science and technology, but we are really focusing on creating a new district where human being is at the center. So more than 50% of the area is dedicated to parks or to rivers, channels that we had in Expo and we are recovering them. And it's a lovely area with 70,000 people when we are going to finish in 2032.
4: Well, you mentioned there the scale and the nature side of it. You showed me some renders of how it's going to look when it's finished, and it's quite amazing to see the greenery involved. You can't really plan for something of this scale without thinking about sustainability, resiliency, and creating a new place that can actually sustain itself going forward. How important was it to include nature then in the project?
3: It was very, very important. We started from nature, we started from human beings. We wanted to create an era where people wanted to come not only for work, but for live with the families, with people 24 hours a day. So nature had to be at the center. So we are going to recover all the areas, the green areas we had in Expo 2015, like the Mediterranean hill for who came, maybe they can remember that. And we are also producing olive oil because in that part of the Milan and the Expo area, we had a lot of old trees and we have also olive oil uh, from Milan. So we are recovering all the areas and letting people live in uh, these uh, parks that are very important for all the projects.
4: This is, of course, a project that taps into an ongoing conversation about the legacy that big events can leave in cities. We see that with the Olympics. We see that with expos around the world as well. One particular thing is that cities have started to adapt, introducing the legacy plan from the beginning, from the candidacy stage. I'm curious about what are your thoughts and perhaps what expertise can you share about you know, those two tracks, the difficulties of coming in with the legacy after and also some of the advantages when you have the legacy from the beginning?
3: Yeah, well, the Milan Innovation District is a project that started after Expo 2015. So, in reality, when Expo finished, we had not yet the final project of, of mine, but then we arrived one year later. But our experience is told to all the other cities that now are willing to have an Expo to start with the post expo project before because once you start before you can better use the infrastructure you can be fast uh, in order to arrive to the post expo project so our experience is very important and i hope that all the cities that are going to host olympic games uh, expo or other big events can define the project uh, before the event in order to be ready just one day after the event to start the new era
4: just moving away from Milan for a bit, you mentioned how RS Expo is also doing other projects outside of the city on a national scale. Not only are you here hoping to learn from international cities, but it seems you're already applying that experience and knowledge in other parts of Italy. What are some of the other projects you have in the pipeline that you can share with us?
3: Yeah, there is another big project in Pavia, which is a, a very interesting city close to Milan. And we are there creating a new innovation yeah. district. Uh, Pavia had three research hospitals. Yeah. a Very interesting interesting university with more than 600 years of of heritage, of story, but what was missing was an area for companies. So we are now creating it in order to put together public private research and companies to create the Pavia Innovation District.
4: Now I have one final question. Mind is going to finish the main stage of building in 2032 and my question is will you be able to buy the olive oil produced there by then as well
3: (laughs) i hope i hope because we are producing the only one olive oil in milan which is something unique so i hope we will continue
4: Now in Saudi Arabia, master planning is being implemented in a different way, this time to revamp the historic town of Alula and bring the community back. Navdeep Hendra is the Vice President of Planning and Development at the Royal Commission for
2: Alula, and she told me all about their vision. Alula is in the northeast of Saudi Arabia. The most interesting thing about it—it's twenty-two square thousand kilometers, which is the size of a country like Belgium. So it's a county, but it's massive. It's huge. It's got three thousand years of uh, heritage. So you know, it's a very cultural landscape beautiful wadis and you know it goes back to the roman and the Nabataean empire so some great uh, un heritage listed sites there i'm not sure if you know hegra but the hegra is one of the un listed sites. we've got the dadanites that cross the area and we've got the Dan site which is there as well old town and uh, we've got an existing community which is a brownfield site now and we are um, doing a master plan called path to prosperity to develop the master plan for the people who live in that region at the moment
4: so talk to me a bit more about the master plan then, because we're talking about here, you know, not only doing this in an innovative, sustainable way, but also there's an issue with retaining people and increasing the community that calls Alula their home. Talk to me about some of the considerations that had to be made then here.
2: So the master plans, I'll, I'll give you a bit of a context, are very diverse in Alula. You know, the size of Alula, it's got 70%, which is nature reserves. So we've got five master plans, which is the master plan one is called Journeys time. As the name says it all, it's got a variety of uh, historical and cultural assets in there. So that master plan is very low in density. We want to make sure we've got the best heritage assets that are maintained the Master Plan 2 that's Part to Prosperity that is where we have our urban communities people living there you know we've got about 22,000 people living there at the moment and the ambition is up to 2035 to have 155,000 across Alula but in the Master Plan Part to Prosperity about 122,000 so that's a great increase and the only way we can reach there is to ensure there are right facilities there's a retention policies in place making sure that people can come back to their rural as well who have left or gone to other cities and that is where our attention is at the moment we're making the right moves not just from planning or spatial planning having the right areas for development but also having the right policies in place, having the right social initiatives in place for people to be able to come back, making sure we've got the right training facilities for them and they can have a sustainable livable community so like a 15 minute city where they can have all the benefits in you know, walkable city as well and, and one of the most active cities in, in Saudi Arabia. So bringing the social infrastructure along with the sports infrastructure. So bringing not just the older community to retain, but also the younger community to come back and call Alula their home.
4: What are then some of the challenges when you think about the community and there's a big issue with building trust, you know, for that to happen, that not only having the older communities come back and new people to call Alula their home, there needs to be a level of trust between, you know, the vision for the city and uh, I guess a, a sense of belonging as well. So how do you manage and foster those connections between private, public and community in order to create a community that works, a human-centric city.
2: And look, that's not an easy answer for it, but the trust can be built over time. And the only way you can do that is by providing some as you go. Your master plans might take 10, 20 years to realize, but how do you actually do things on ground that the people can start to look and feel? They can feel the difference and they're part of that plan making as well. So you're not building around them, but you're building with them. So that's one area where we've actually been quite involved with our community in in Alula as we're doing our master planning. So making small changes. So I'll give you an example. The local population or the youngsters who are there, there's a program that we call the Hawaii Program, where we actually train them. They are the guides for the people who come in to take them to the cultural sites, talk about the intangible heritage, because they know so much. They have actually grown up on those areas, right? And they've heard these stories from their grandfathers and so forth. So they bring that passion And that has been such a successful program that has given employment to, you know, thousands of youngsters, but also that sense of belongingness where they see that the government or the city, we are the city, there we are, Mm -hmm. the regulatory authority is doing a lot to give back to the community in some way. You know, we are upgrading these cultural sites, but it's increasing opportunities of employment for them right? It's bringing Alula on the world map. So you you can see visitors coming in. You see international travelers coming in. And that opens up their opportunities for employment, not just for them to do jobs, but also local content. You know, their dates are being transferred around the world. They've got moringa farming, which was uh, almost dying, has been brought back in. You know, they can actually see these changes. There's a lot of focus we've got on art and culture. So now the, the local artisans, the local entrepreneurs, they're able to bring their expertise and the visitors traveling there. They love to buy produce from them. And it's just bringing those small early activations or early works as we call them as part of our implementation of the master plans because a real implementation would take years, you know, for you to develop large-scale assets and developments. But these are small changes that you make on ground as you go. As the three days of discussion came to a close, one issue
4: seemed to have permeated all talks. How investing in nature can be the way forward for the cities of tomorrow. And one company working to bring greenery back into urban areas is Sugi, an organisation that plants dense pocket forests in cities across the globe. Here's Sugi's founder, Elise van Midelem. Think of them
6: as biomes, right? We're not planting trees, we are creating micro-ecosystems. And so... Personally, to me, it was really important to bring back the wild. You see, having been able to live in San Francisco and going into that ancient forest, which is the Redwoods. By the way, Sugi is the sister of the Redwoods. It's a Japanese tree, my favorite tree. (laughs) And the idea was really like, how can we create for people that sensation, that ancestral feeling of the wild. Do you see when you take a space is the hundred square meters, 200 square meters, you plant 300 or 600 trees, immediately you get that sense of a buzzing life, the web of life. You get the soil restores. You bring back a lot of pollinators. You bring back the butterflies and all the life that comes with it, but also birds. You know, all of a sudden birds in that density have a safe space to nest. And then the fun part is, is that you can plant right where people live and work, so they can get that sense of belonging and have an ownership over that pocket forest.
4: Speaking of ownership, a lot of the projects that you deploy tend to be in schools as well. Mm. What are some of the particular challenges when you are introducing these projects in schools? And I guess I'm just curious, how do kids react? I can imagine that for some of them, this is quite a novel, exciting experience. Mm. Yeah, it is, absolutely. So we
6: actually call them the outdoor classrooms. So until this day, we have about 170 pocket forests planted. We'll be at 200 at the end of the year, and 90 of them are schools. So we until this day, we've got 40,000 children that were impacted with the creation of these forests. And many of them have never touched the soil. They've been told at home it's dirty. And so they arrive at the site, and the first moment is always like amazement, right? Like, where do they start, and how do they do this? But the beauty about these forests is, and think of it that way, nature is random. It's not organized. It's organized chaos. And children, in the end, are the best planters. They arrive, we lay out the trees, and you imagine it's shrub subtree, tree, canopy. So we plant in layers. There's 20 minimum different native species. And then we just say to them, pick a tree and plant. And they run for it. But I think that's the beauty of it. They get astounded by, you know, can we really dig in the soil? We give them worms and we let them throw worms on the soil because they, they aerate the soil. And then it's the mulching part, right? Like, so a forest, we always like, we work the soil, we plant, and then we heavily mulch them to create an ecosystem. So there's this whole idea of reconnecting. and And for them,
4: actually, they become the stewards of the forest. I'm curious about the impact Sugi can have in cities more generally, because there is a lack of availability for nature. Yes, we see more and more master plans, including nature, but not to the extent of what it's needed. So I guess, what are some of the opportunities that Sugi can present here to bridge that gap that exists between urban living and access to nature mm.
6: and of course you know as you can imagine every part of the world will be different and will have a different need in india when we plant we we think a lot about desertification like of course heat islands and flooding like where are the sponges in the city but let's think about london for a second and today we've about 20 pocket forests planted in the city and we can actually, on that minimal space, create maximum diversity and think of it as um, urban acupuncture. So whatever points we can add, they're not only great points like a bee can travel 2.4 kilometers, I think. So it's like just creating these touch points where nature pollinate the pathways, where nature can thrive as well within um, a bustling environment. On top of it, for us humans... It's joy, right? And to have them and to integrate them in the smallest space possible is a, is a necessity because of nature and, and we can't function without nature. A city can't function without nature.
4: The range of issues raised at the summit and its international scope show just how vital it is for cities to learn from each other. With a mix of plenary sessions, strategy discussions and tours, there was plenty of opportunity to see many of these topics in action and to forge new partnerships. As attendees head back home, let's hope these lessons can transform into meaningful change and help deliver a better future for cities around the globe. For Monocle in Detroit, I'm Carlotta Rebello.
0: Thanks, Carlotta. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes directly to you every single week. The Urbanist is produced and edited by Carlotta Bello and David Stevens. And to play you out this week, here's Smokey Robinson and the Miracles with I Care About Detroit. Thank you for listening, city lovers.